You don't need to say, can I do it? We run our communities, we run our homes, we run our communities, we run our countries. It's all a matter of scale. <laughs> it truly is. So I am very excited about this next discussion. Uh, Rachel is going to be joined on stage in just a moment by two remarkable women and uh, moderated by another uh, formidable woman in her own right. And we're going to have a conversation focused on solutions. So please join me in welcoming to the stage, first of all, the former current senator and former premier of the Yukon, Pat Duncan. And also coming to the stage, coming from Newfoundland and Labrador, Kathy Dunderdale. And finally, we'll welcome Althea Raj, a journalist who we are very privileged to have moderating this conversation today. Okay, so this panel is supposed to be about the 4%. And a lot of the solutions, I think, or the answers to some problems, um, Rachel Notley outlined. But I'm going to give the two of you a chance to talk about what you think um, the solution should be and maybe define what you think uh, part of the problem is. But let me start off with you. Kathy, would you like to start? Sure. Well, now, that's quite a question. If I had to say one thing, it would be this. Uh, today I'm in the company of extraordinary women. And that's very exciting for me. It's the first time we've all been together in this group. But I want to tell you that this room is filled with extraordinary women. None of us would see ourselves that way, especially when we began our journey of being engaged in community. So the thing that I would say, first of all, is that every one of you and every woman you know in your life should consider seeking public office, either at the municipal level, the, the provincial level, or the federal level. You don't need to say, can I do it? We run our communities, we run our homes, we run our communities, we run our countries. It's all a matter of scale. <laughs> it truly is. In, in, in your household budget, you're talking thousands of dollars in a year. In a provincial budget, you're talking billions. But the principle is the same. <laughs> Don't be intimidated. We all have gifts. Everybody brings something to the table. Even if you're just contrary, you bring something to the table. Because you challenge other people to think and to defend their positions. And so it's important for you to consider coming to the table, 
because decisions are being made that affect your life and they need to be informed by your experience. And that's relevant. It doesn't matter what your background is. You have something to say. And things will not change regardless of what parties do or governments do or what happens within systems if women don't make that commitment themselves to be part of that process and to put themselves forward. And it's probably the scariest decision that you're ever going to make. It's like labor. You know, once it starts, you're into it and you just got to do it. That's very hard to talk, Kathy. <laughs> I couldn't agree more that it has been an amazing experience to be in the company of all of these women. And I cannot thank Canada 2020 and Kate Graham enough for the work that was done to, and to bring us all together and to share our stories with Canadians. It is the first time we've had a chance to talk and it's, uh, it's been a great experience. In terms of encouraging women to run, I would echo what um, Kathy has said in that please recognize the gifts that you have. Each woman in this room is extraordinary and the principles are the same. If you won't put your name on a ballot, you're not quite ready to do that. Encourage your friends, encourage your neighbors. And you can support them in so many ways that you wouldn't necessarily immediately come to mind. Traditional parties might say, well, obviously it's funds. But I think with Women Candidate, it's so much more than that. It's the moral support of helping your friends recognize their talents and their abilities and the qualities that would make people vote for them. And the contribution that they have to give. And you can support them in through encouragement, through as simple as, I'll go door knock with you. Let me proofread your brochure. Your own skill set supports your friends. And it's so important that women be at the table and at the First Minister's conferences. And they're in leadership roles. One of the skill sets I've learned in my experience as a public servant and a politician is reading and applying legislation and that's a skill set I'm now working on in the Senate with I might say a great deal of women and it I believe has changed the atmosphere in Canada's upper house our chamber of sober second thought as we're looking at that legislation there's a tone of respect there with all of the, the women that are present. My point about legislation is that that t-shirt that read that no woman, lunatic, idiot, or criminal shall vote, Canada's Election Act, we need women at the table reading that legislation, voting on that legislation, and saying, no, this isn't quite right in making amendments. And I must say the changes to Canada's Senate we recently learned that this particular Senate, with its parity of women, has made more amendments to legislation than any other Senate. 
I believe that has something to do with the fact that there are women there. There are more women. You know, I'm struck, you mentioned the Canada Elections Act, for example, allows candidates to write off daycare costs when they're knocking on the door. And Rachel Notley talked about quotas. I don't know if that's formalized quotas or that was just a, a practice, but there's been a number of mostly NDP bills in the House of Commons encouraging parties to embrace the idea of quotas for candidates that has never passed. Um, the Liberal Party has a campaign school to teach you how to run in high heels, uh, ask, teaching women how to ask for money, basically. Kind of the, uh, the obstacles that are often uh, there for, uh, that are there a, that are more present for women, it seems, than they are present for men. What solutions, like what would be, if you had like one change that you would say, this has to be done to encourage more women to enter politics, what would that be? I can't get past the fact that I think in the long term, over the course of you know 10 to 15 years, if we had a proper childcare program, uh, it would revolutionize women's participation in every sector of society. And that's what you see in jurisdictions that have proper childcare. And that through that, you would you would then have the knock-on effects, which would include include uh, increasing the the number of women who feel that they're in the position to put their name forward for politics. If you were to pull back from that, I think that even within the political, uh, within parties themselves, I mean, obviously, uh, I'm a fan of just saying we're not ready to run until we have, until our slate consists of 50% women. That is the only way we are going to make sure that we elect 50% women. And we are not election ready until we have a slate that looks like that. Um, not everybody uh, is a, a, in favor of that. And it's, not as easy to do in a, even within the same party depending on the circumstances and I understand it can be complicated but I think that it should still be a focus um, if you were to step one step back from that though there are the, the process itself within political parties is highly competitive and it, it asks women to do a whole bunch of things that uh, f where you know basically the the elements of the process are elements that have been uh, developed over many, many years in an environment where the vast majority of people uh, participating are, are men. And so, for instance, the matter of fundraising. Perhaps parties should just say, if you are a woman, the party actually has money set aside to fund these women's campaigns. So maybe it's not the case that you need to be calling up your golf buddies to get the, the checks into your campaign account because maybe you don't really have golf buddies and maybe the point at which you would be making those calls, you're actually running the kids to soccer and dance and in Taekwondo. And so maybe the party has to rethink the actual path to becoming a candidate. So there's, there's a lot of ways we can talk these things through, but just saying, here's how you do the things that we've decided over the years um, have to be done to be a good candidate, um, when those decisions were not made by women, doesn't seem to me to be a, a, a pathway to having more women be on the ballot. I would go outside the, the parties and the politics and talk about young people. If I could do one, make one change, it would be to give young women the confidence to begin the very early stages at the dinner table. You think you can? They can because they think they can. To know that their opinion is respected at the dinner table. I believe it starts there. It starts with 
mothers and fathers encouraging young women to take their place and to have their opinions heard. I absolutely agree. I, I don't. I think we all have to become engaged in one way or another in the political process. We have to think about what kind of a province do we want? What kind of a country do we want? What's the degree of civility? What's the degree of engagement and balance and fairness? And that requires the participation of all of us. And, and you know, we hear from the squeaky wheels. Squeaky wheels never get tired either. That's the thing that, <laughs> uh, you know, the rest of us can kind of get worn out and we get tired and we have other busy things to do, other, we have busy lives and there's other things to do. Uh, people who don't have a lot on the go, don't have a lot on the ball, really never get tired. And sometimes that's why we end up with some of the people we end up with. And we want to have if we model the behavior that is civil, we encourage folks and we call out those who are not civil. Every legislature in this country begins with a prayer. And I encourage the Yukon Legislative Assembly's prayer ends with the ask that we may make only sound, fair, and wise decisions on behalf of the people we represent. Let's also treat all of those people politely. And you mentioned hashtag. In this day of changing media, hashtag a civil society where we treat one another including the women who are there in a civil, respectful manner, because that way we'll encourage more to run. I'm struck by what you're saying about civility, because on the one hand, I feel like you're both being very encouraging to this crowd. Please run, put your name out there. And on the other hand, I listened to you, Catherine McKenna, for example, who was on the uh, news channels this weekend, listing and describing the tweets that she gets, the, the death threats, the just words that are so outrageous that I would never repeat them publicly. That to me is more discouraging than anything else. Why would anybody want to put their name on a ballot and feel like that is what you're going to encounter for the next four years and you may or may not be able to change anything? How, how do we overcome that? It starts with each of us saying, no, that's not acceptable. It starts with the speakers in the legislatures who have authority over, to some degree, the comments, certainly they have authority over what's uttered in the House, in their houses, and what's uttered publicly as well. But you can't retreat in the face of that either. You can't hand the field over to haters. It's tough. If you've listened to the podcast, you will know what my views are. And, and tough for your families. It's hard work. Nobody is gathered here today is going to tell you that this is easy. Um, I remember hearing from Allison, and Allison and I began, became friends, premiers at the same time, after she left, and me sending a, a, a text saying, how you doing? And her saying to me, they won't be satisfied until they take the last piece of flesh from my bones. It's hard. And members of my family will still 
I won't live long enough to get over it. Um, that's the hardest piece because, you know, I know who I am and I won't let somebody else define me. that too is I had a platform. The people who loved me didn't. And it was extremely hard. But again, all the more reason why you don't retreat in the face of that kind of hostility. There's lots of support. There's lots of people who will gather around you and lift you up uh, when it's required. But the only way that you stop that is when you become engaged. And somebody has to say, stop, no. And I won't let that happen. It's worth doing. It's tough. It's absolutely worth doing. And we need you to do it. I do think that... Uh, um, all of us, and, and ultimately maybe um, both both in, an or, in, in a sort of organic way, but also perhaps in a more organized way, and I'm not, not here to propose legislation on it, but uh, there, there needs to be some means of, of, of really challenging uh, the, the discourse that we see, uh, particularly in, on social media, because it's, it's, it's gotten pretty crazy town, and, uh, and uh, it is hard I, I think for, for anybody to consider putting their name into public office, let alone women. I will say, you know, from the perspective of just my experience talking to people to try to still be encouraging, the in-person feedback that you get is, is still pretty positive. Um, and that's, that's the thing. And, and I think that uh, um, people need to know that. So that even when you're looking at some of the trolls and what are the things people are saying and you go, oh my God, I couldn't for in ever imagine doing that job because the trolls said A, B, or C. Uh, but you do need to know, I'm here to tell you, that, that uh, the, the um, in-person eye-contacted feedback that exists is very, very encouraging and warm and it's, it's some of the most amazing moments in my life, the kind of feedback that you get. And maybe it might be one person comes to you and says, uh, you changed my life. Um, but that's, that's huge. So for women that are thinking about politics, I, I really want them to know that that is real, even with or without social media, that, that, that kind of engagement with the rest of the world. My own personal approach to this from day one, I grew up in a political house. I watched my dad as a politician. I watched others. And so very early on, uh, I just sort of adopted this approach that what I say about myself on the campaign trail is not really connected to me, and what other people say about me is not really connected to me. It's part of the job. And so that you don't um, internalize that. You don't want to read your good press and believe it, because then you're going to be compelled to read your bad press and believe it. So do what you believe, do what you know is a good job, and carry on. I'm curious to know if you think, you know, there's this problem about women uh, not being re-elected. Kathy, maybe this doesn't necessarily apply to you unless you, because you didn't run for a, a second time, but do you think you didn't win because you were a woman? Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, I will say certainly before I even 
decided to run for leader. The biggest, uh, the biggest decision for me was actually the decision not to run for office, but the decision to run for leader. And I remember having a conversation once uh, with uh, a fellow that was running to lead uh, the PCs. I think it was the time that you ran, Allison. And I happened to run across him as on the way into the legislature, and he was in the middle of this obvious uh, fight with one of the uh, backbench MLAs in, in your caucus. And then I carried on walking with him, and he was he just said, I don't even know why I want this. This is ridiculous. And uh, um, I remember saying to him at the time, you know, I am happy to disagree and fight, in quotation marks, with you guys across the aisle and with people that don't agree with me. But the hardest thing to do is to uh, fight with the people in your party. And uh, which was, you know, why I was a bit reluctant to take on the role of leadership at the outset. And, and so I will say, and I don't know if women feel that more or not, but I will say that's really a tough thing. Um, anyway, so that was obviously not a, a, a factor in my failing to get elected. I think that um, it might have been an issue. I think it was indirect. I have to be honest. I think there were elements of being a woman, a woman that helped me. Um, in in terms of running, I mean, there was a gender gap in terms of voting uh, intentions, and you know, uh, some polls, not all, but some polls, right the day before the election, uh, showed that you know uh, my popularity was as high or higher than than um, uh, the person that successfully became premier. So that's not necessarily then an indication that the fact that I was a woman was the problem. But at the same time, you know, there's no question that Albertans are deeply, deeply frustrated by the fact, uh, by, by the economic slowdown, um, by the fact that uh, it, the recovery hasn't come back the way they need, by the fact that they're very worried about jobs and taking care of their family, and there's also uh, an anger or a perception, no, there's an anger uh, with the fact that they perceive that the, the tools that they would use to come back from this uh, economic uh, recession are being held from them by others in the country. So there was a lot of anger that drove this election, and there was definitely a desire to fight, 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 fight. And so then, if that's what people are looking for, was the fact that people believe that I was not the person to lead that fight in part because I was a woman? We haven't really polled that. But it's certainly probably a factor. Um, probably not defining. I think other politics were, was more defining. But um, when people are looking for a fighter to lead them, I think there's no question that it can be harder for women. There are examples of women in politics who've done that well, uh, but the, it is a, a smaller group than women who have led well by building consensus, uh, you know, pulling people together, making progress that way. Super interesting. Uh, we have a question. Um, so thank you very much uh, for your comments. Uh, this was a great um, kind of panel. Um, I have a question for um, Rachel. Um, so in your speech, you mentioned that um, a lot of decisions get made sort of in informal spaces that women are excluded from, either because they have other sort of responsibilities such as childcare, things like that. Um, you know, you're talking about the late night Scotch parties. And I'm just wondering, um, do you have any kind of suggestions for how to either democratize those spaces to make them more comfortable for women or kind of do without them altogether? 
We're going to hold off. Can you remember that question? Sure. Okay. Let's take another question, and then we'll, we'll do two and two. Hi, uh, Denise uh, Ciele, and I actually have a two-part uh, question that uh, we talk a lot about encouraging uh, women and the things that we as women can do. Uh, how are we challenging the men in our lives? That's the first question. And then the second question is, uh, within and among ourselves, uh, what is our intentional piece around marginalized women, women of color, indigenous women, right, as we're rising? So two-part question. How can we challenge the men in our lives, and uh, what are we doing to bring everyone else uh, from those communities along? Thank you. Okay, let's start with Rachel, and then we'll do Denise's question. Um, so, in terms of uh, democratizing those spaces, that's a, uh, it's an interesting question. And I think in some cases there's opportunities to do that. Uh, there's also other opportunities to make, what you do is you make those spaces less relevant. Um, and, and so, I mean, let's be honest, politics is relational and, 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 and it's a, it's a bit like a drug because stuff happens really quickly and, and, and it's very social. And I'm not here to say that, that we should, you know, bring the hammer down on all sort of social relational, um, uh, in elements of what politics is about. But what we need to do is, is make sure that the places that matter, um, are places that are accessible to everybody and and that uh, we also talk about uh, and, and, and make people aware of what's happening sometimes unconsciously. So it's not like caucus decisions are being made when people are sitting around drinking scotch, but relationships are being built and, and then they factor into the conversation that's happening at caucus in the, in the, in the assembly, wherever, you know, around the cabinet table, whatever. Um, and so we need to just be very conscious of uh, how those re- of not letting that particular space, which is not open to everybody, define how people engage uh, in the in the real spaces. So I think that's probably the the most important piece to that. Um, and then, of course, obviously, just ensuring that that the the more offensive elements of what can happen in those other spaces are also mitigated, and that you also, I mean, for instance, uh, we we we. And I was a big offender of this. We had sort of a Christmas party after the house rose, you know. And, of course, everyone's, oh, yay, the Christmas party. I can't wait. And uh, everyone's really pumped for it. And, and then at a certain point, some of our, a uh, couple of our younger uh, caucus members and a couple of our younger staff came and said, can the Christmas party start with a family-friendly piece to it? So, in fact, that's what we did. The first three hours was, you know, kid-friendly, and the kids were there. And it was a different kind of feel. Um, and so... That kind of thing, just opening the door. So there's no one hard and fast thing. It's just being aware of the degree to which those undemocratized spaces can impact decision-making. Um, obviously, I, I'll let these guys talk more, but obviously we do, even, I've always been conscious of the fact that even as we're talking about women in politics, it, the same challenges exist for ensuring that we have uh, voices at the table who represent um, uh, other marginalized and, and minority groups, whether men or women, um, at, the, at the table. And, uh, so, and it's, it's, it's so incredibly important that we uh, are do what we can to to try to do that as well. Women's easy because it's 50-50, right? So we all kind of know that's the rule of thumb. It's a little bit more complicated uh, but with, with other groups. But we 
uh, have to be, I think, very conscious of giving a voice for, for the people who really are in, who are our citizens. I think part of the challenge is accepting people where they are and then helping them understand why things need to change. Uh, the, you know, all ways of thinking and acting are so ingrained that unless they're challenged in a very particular way, it's often to get people to understand why it's important to do it differently. But and what I do you can, mean by challenged in a particular way? Well, because I can give you an example. Uh, uh, the uh, Hibernia oil project was the first project in our offshore and uh, we had some uh, observations that we made around that huge economic engine that was running our province for several years. And we, a bunch of women got together and did some research and we found that less than only 4% of the employees on the Hibernia project were women. Less than 1% were involved in trades and technology. So women were virtually shut out of the project. Even the housekeeping jobs, men got them before women did. And in one discussion, when that was challenged, somebody said, well, the women didn't say that you had to plug in the vacuum cleaner before you vacuumed. And on that basis, I mean, that's how ridiculous the whole, and, and, and not even to address the kind of harassment and so on that went on on the project site. So, you know, now we had the research, what did we do with it? And this is just a group of women working in community. And uh, uh, a dozen of us got together, we applied to a program that was available under the federal government. We leveraged out $1.3 million, which was a lot of money. Uh, back in the 90s, and then we went to the college system and worked with them to um, design an orientation to trades and technology for women so they could explore jobs in that area and, uh, and work with the colleges to deliver that program and, and worked also with women in trades and technology in the, in the country to deliver that project. And, you know, demonstrating how women had been shut out and then doing something positive to change that, that affected everybody's life, made all the difference. The unseen consequence of it was that when the next big project came on to be negotiated, which was Hebron, I just happened to be Minister of Natural Resources. <laughs> and, and so in the negotiation of the development plan and the benefits plan, we included in that a gender and diversity clause that was, was the first in the country and probably the first in the world, but it's been adopted in every big piece of work that we do now and adopted elsewhere. And, and it, it, it deals with the real hard fact of inclusion, of diversity, of meeting targets, and if, you, if the personnel are not available, what you do to ensure that they're available. And, and so you can proceed now once you convince people of the good sense of that and the rightness of that, and then you enshrine it in legislation, then it has to happen. 
And so that's the part of challenging men and educating men and women, because we're not all knowing around these things. And so you, we do that piece of work, you share that with people, and you, you make strong arguments as to why that ought to change. You know, all of our governance should reflect the people they serve. So just by its very nature, you should be diverse. And, and when it is diverse, when it is reflective of the society that it's making all these rules and programs for, it's better. And I learned that in government. In, in the first term in our government, we didn't have any indigenous people in our caucus or at the cabinet table. Second term, we did. We only had one indigenous woman at the cabinet table, but I can tell you the significant difference she made was incredible. We were a better government because she was at the table. And, and when you, you know, in Newfoundland we say a rising tide lifts all boats. And it does. When women do better, when, when, when you ad adopt diversity as a principle, then we all do better. We all do better. I would just add to that in terms of the democratizing spaces. The world belongs to those who show up. Don't wait for an invitation and if, be there. Whether it, um, if someone says, or perhaps it's you, says, you know, there's a community suffering, we need to, let's go volunteer. That's an opportunity to work alongside people and to share views. I, I use that example because when um, the Senate was called back and was experiencing the flooding this spring, I put a call out to those who were around over the weekend, let's go do something. And one of the other senators who came with me, we took that time to learn each other's views about a particular piece of legislation. So show up when, and you too will be welcomed and we'll start to reflect our population. In terms of diversity and recognizing less advantaged, the vulnerable sectors, and the diversity that makes up Canada, don't underestimate the power of language. In the Yukon Legislative Assembly and in the Senate, in your Legislative Assembly, today we heard a prayer in First Nation language. We hear thank you at the end of every speech. Thank you, merci beaucoup, and in the words of the Yukon native first languages, First Nation languages, Asicho, Ganaschis, we all use them. And that's a change that's happened in a very short period of time. That language is so important because it recognizes where people come from. And it brings, as Kathy has noted, diversity. We too have had, um, I have the great benefit of working with Yukon First Nations Yukon First Nation governments and it's an amazing experience to reach a settled land claim and to work 
with people in building a better future for Canadians jointly. Thank you very much. Thank you to our panelists. Kathy Dunderdale, Pat Duncan, and Rachel Notley. Coming up on No Second Chances. We need more contrary young women out there talking about what matters to them. Because a lot of things matter to them. Because it takes a long time to reprogram those expectations. To make people look at you and say, that's what a premier looks like. You know, that's what a prime minister looks like. That's what a bank president looks like. You do belong. You have positive illusion. You know, make time this afternoon to, uh, to rule the world. No Second Chances is a special project of Canada 2020, written and hosted by me, Kate Graham. It's produced by Sarah Turnbull and I, and recorded and edited by Aaron Reynolds. Our music is composed and performed by Meredith Yeyenos. Mira Ahmad is the Communications and Operations Manager at Canada 2020, which is led by Executive Director Alex Patterson. And this project would not be possible without the support of MasterCard. <laughs>